This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast, brought to you in association with Renewable UK. This week I'm joined by our Africa editor Ed Reid and digital journalist Hamish Penman. Good morning, gents. I hope you're both keeping well. Two of us were at a certain awards dinner last night, myself included, and feeling slightly vulnerable as we record this morning. How how are you, Hamish? Yeah, (laughs) so-so. Did you at least win an award? Uh, We watched a lot of awards being won. We did watch a lot of awards being won. We, we definitely drank our share of, you know, just being non-important media types. Uh, I think we at least gave them a bit of run for money there. Probably won't invite us back after that. But but yeah. That was good fun. That was a good enough night. Uh, it was a nice kind of kind of Kaylee Kaylee-ish band, I don't know, um, going on. And, and yeah, yeah, it was all right. It was all right. But no, podcasting uh, after something like that, of course, is... Uh, Challenging at best, I dare say listeners won't be able to tell the difference given the, the usual level of, of incompetence that uh, I display in this thing. So anyway, so this morning, uh, this morning as we record, uh, the oil price has uh, breached $100 for the first time since 2014. Obviously, European gas prices are, are escalating uh, similarly, uh, and that all comes off the back of the situation in in Russia and, and troops invading the, the Ukraine. Um, obviously, a market already under stress as the economies of the world uh, try to recover from the the impacts of, of of the pandemic. But I mean, Ed, there's been there's been talk of higher commodity prices for a long time now. I mean, do we think this is a a short term hike or is this perhaps the the new normal for us? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's 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 a very good question. I mean, I think you know clearly we're seeing you know this 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 recent sort of price spike being really driven up by those sort of geopolitical tensions. Obviously, uh, you know, it was. It, it's. I mean, so uh, I'm. I'm. I was. I was down in London uh, yesterday. I was at uh, not international. Not not IP week anymore. It's International Energy Week. Mm. They've <laughs> dropped the petroleum. Um, and I was having a drink with a with with an oil trader friend, and we were sort of speculating. You know, like, oh, is you know Russia going to actually you know kind of follow through and and move from those sort of peacekeeping operations they call it in in Donetsk and Luhansk into into a wider scale attack? And I was like, there's no chance. There's no wow. Why would he, you know, and obviously he woke up this morning, as you say, and uh, and, and President Putin's pressed the big button mm. and uh, is, is is carrying out strikes across Ukraine. So it just really goes to show that I should never make predictions, <laughs> even even uh, six hours into the future. It's just asking for trouble. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, obviously we're seeing I think the last time I checked oil was at one hundred and three, something like that. Mm. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an extraordinary turnaround from uh, from the negative oil price prices that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic isn't it i mean mm-hmm. that sort of minus was it 38 that we saw which was just yeah. so extra i think it was one of the first podcasts that we did yeah yeah i think so and just the the, the sort of the swing from that point when we were thinking oh you know is this the end of the oil age will oil demand ever come back and you know there was a big question you know like a legit, seemingly a legitimate question obviously now uh we're we're sort of on track you know back on track for uh you know sort of hit the, the those 2019 uh, peaks uh, there was a there was some uh, B of A uh, analysis that I that I wrote up this week that was uh, saying that they they expected demand this year to hit I think it was 101 uh, and then and then and then more to come in 2023. So I think there is this sense that you know the oil oil age is not going anywhere fast. Mm. Um, and I think about and, and I suppose you know the sort of the the, the the Russian invasion has sort of played into that as we've seen demand coming back. 
as we're seeing, you know, things like jet fuel sort of finally kind of come back, which is a really interesting barometer of sort of international trade. Then there's a, there is a sense that you know we're sort of you know we're 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 really back on track with 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 uh, that sort of projection. I think the, the the B of A analysis was actually really interesting. I mean, I think basically they were saying in the sort of the medium term, it's a medium term outlook, so to twenty twenty seven. They were saying uh, sort of essentially high and volatile prices, mm. so that the, you know this was going to be prices they they thought over the next five years would average sixty to eighty dollars, which is a fairly big escalation. Obviously, it's not the sort of the hundred dollars that we're seeing at the moment, but that's like a, a sort of a five year average. But I think it's it's a it's a really interesting uh, projection, and I think it quite quite telling, I suppose, in terms of. We've seen over the last, you know, sort of couple of weeks as as, as majors have been coming out with their with their production reports of of, of how twenty twenty one. I think pretty much all of them, all the ones that I've seen, produced less oil as uh, in, in twenty twenty one, particularly the end of twenty twenty one. And obviously, upstream spending is down something like twenty five percent from pre pandemic levels. So I think. There is this sense that uh, those majors really kind of bought into that, uh, you know, the idea that, that that maybe oil demand wasn't going to come back. That well, I mean, they were they were they were getting that from their shareholders, weren't they? Sure. Who said, look, let's let's talk let's talk transition, let's talk move away from oil, let's talk offshore wind, let's talk solar, and that's where they 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 put their money. And now, hmm. I mean, you've got to say maybe that might have been a mistake. I mean, I think you know we're we're looking at this point where. You know, oil's at a hundred, and it looks, you know, like it's going to be, you know, fairly significant at least for the for the for the sort of medium term. Yeah, yeah. The, There's going to be some head scratching. Uh, yeah, I, uh, there there certainly will be some head scratching going on. It go, I think it goes. I mean, it's just going to be really interesting to see how they uh, respond. As as you say, Ed, the the shareholders have been have been pushing for uh, rightly for for energy transition actions, but yeah, the the. Big oil have been talking up big wind and, and solar and the like, and now we have this huge incentive uh, from a, a shareholder perspective more than anything else, I suppose, to, well, you know, commodity prices are high again. Are we going to you know re-inject some of that capital into upstream or indeed, uh, you know, they're probably going to, they have been re-injecting some of these profits into buybacks. Uh, Hamish, you'll be able to talk about that. But, you know, I, I read a couple of weeks ago, Lord Brown, formerly uh, chief executive of BP, you know, he was kind of saying that, you know, this, this huge incentive is back on oil and gas firms to, you know, put spending back into, well, oil and gas rather than renewables. And he said he's he's got fear for the for the natural environments in, in that kind of um, place with the commodity prices being so high. I mean, I, I don't think you can go back on uh, the renewables uh, piece if having and, and the energy transition piece having made the pledges that these companies have made. But yeah, I mean, the, the temptation surely must be there to have another look at their their upstream portfolios and say, well, can we actually get a bit more out of these? Um, Hamish, you were writing about um, oil firms um, re-injecting these huge profits into into buybacks recently. That I was, yeah. There was some um, reporting. It was actually in the Financial Times that we've managed to, to lift or... Or rip off, or whatever you want, whatever you want to call it. But it seems that it's kind of a bit damning for all these kind of big pledges about we can't have a, I suppose, windfall tax because it will harm investment in in renewables. When what was it, twenty uh, twenty seven billion there or thereabouts, almost twenty eight billion, will be going to share buybacks from the majors or the Western majors this year. So. Well, it's a pretty sizable sum. I think it was um, 
and RBC Capital kind of placed it even higher at 30 billion. So these are I mean, massive amounts plying, plying back into that. And you would assume that it can only continue now, given the, the high, high oil prices. Um, we might be seeing a return to profits for these companies for for many years to come. Although it's well, like Ed, I won't want to predict anything currently. <laughs> it's dangerous territory, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, uh, as we heard from uh, Ed with his six-hour prediction, but it is. I mean, that's that's the constant thing you hear, isn't it, with predicting the oil price? You always hear people saying, "Well, you know, I don't want to, to get into it." But I suppose, uh, as you were kind of getting at Ed, I mean, even setting the Ukraine situation aside, or you know, as as such. You know, we're recovering from the pandemic. Some of the bigger players that have been a bit tentative about oil and gas. Uh, and I suppose in those conditions, it is reasonable to think there might continue to be tightness of supply. But, you know, good implications for, for anybody trying to get started up on oil and gas or, you know, uh, even those who are who are indeed in oil and gas uh, right now. But uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was some quite I mean, there, there's obviously that kind of question about who who benefits, isn't there? And, and, and you know, where the sort of points of extra supply may be. And I think I, I suppose, you know, obviously, Iran is the big wild card. I think mm. you know, obviously, those sort of JCPOA talks are, you know, kind of going ahead. And I think, there's going to be obviously real pressure on the US administration at this point to try and make sort of demonstrable progress because unlocking those Iranian barrels would, you know, that's, you know, obviously there are, there are a number of different numbers around who, uh, about around how many, how many extra kind of barrels that they, that they can actually provide. But that would be a sort of a significant breakthrough that would really have an impact on, on, on the oil price. Mm, yeah. I suppose in terms of sort of, you know, sort of longer term production, uh, the, 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 so the, this B of A analysis that I you know referenced, they were saying uh, there was a lot of sort of deep water hopes, particularly kind of Guyana, Brazil, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, Permian Basin in the US, obviously a big sort of mainstay. That's going to pass, I think they said, 6 million barrels. So I mean that's there's a really sort of significant value. So, I mean the, the, I think slightly unfortunately the one the one sort of slightly uh, downbeat uh, projection was uh, was was the UK. Ah, there and it they is. They said you know that, that really is, <laughs> it's 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 looking at decline. That you know there are no sort of significant fields going to be starting up. So I mean I, I I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I mean certainly from the sort of you know slightly outside perspective, looking at those Cambo difficulties, looking at you know some of the discussions around the challenges, it it, it does feel like maybe maybe we're gonna to have to look elsewhere for the uh for, for, for the next uh new hotspots well ed hold that thought um, <laughs> and we will come back we'll come back with some discussion of of the uk's uh coming prospects particularly rosebank uh right after this Join me, Hamish Penman, online on Monday the 7th of March for the second in Energy Voices Tracking Transition series on wind power. Across all four of these virtual events, we're assessing the wind sector's development to date and investigating what needs to happen to maximise its potential. Beamed live to our audience from the UK Cabinet Office in Edinburgh, this second session focusing on the UK state of play will zero in on the UK's burgeoning wind sector and the rich export opportunities it presents. Find out more and register free at trackingwind.com to join our virtual audience and hear from our expert panel led by SSE, fresh from their recent success in the Scotland leasing rounds. 7th of March, trackingwind.com. I can't wait to see you there. 
Okay, so yeah, looking at the future of, of the UK and whether we might get more fields uh, rolling or not, it's certainly been uh, a topic of contention and uh, we'll we'll delve into that right now through the prism of what's been going on with uh, the, the Rosebank uh, field. So Equinor, the Norwegian oil giant, has signed a key contract to get things going with Rosebank. That is one of the largest untapped oil fields in UK waters, 300 million barrels or so recoverable in the west of Shetland. And uh, as as you just heard from Ed uh, it, it, referencing, it lies just 25 miles or so from another well-known west of Shetland oil field called Cambo. Um, so there's, there's a possibility that Rosebank could become the next Cambo, but let's talk about that in a second. Just in terms of what's happened recently, though, uh, Equinor has awarded a, a front-end engineering design deal with Altera Infrastructure to use their Petriarl NAR FPSO at Rosebank. The vessel is currently stationed at the NAR field in the Norwegian North Sea and I think is expected to depart around May time, I believe. But this, I mean, this that, that sounds fairly... Um, how, uh, boring. Don't, don't say boring, <laughs> Alison. But you, you know, so the, the significance of this is that it shows that Equinor has the intent to move ahead with this project. And you know, certainly after what happened with Cambo, certainly after all the protests, all the ESG concerns, um, and just the, the technical challenge of getting something like this going in an environmentally friendly way, um, would be enough to put off, I think, a, a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of, of, of the future for Rosebank, you know, we now, we now have the vessel. Um, they need to figure out how exactly they're going to power it, um, uh, generate electricity for it. Um, you know, if, if we have climate checkpoints coming in to the UK very, very soon, FID for, for Rosebank is in May of this year, um, and the Committee on Climate Change is saying that, well, new projects, and they name-checked Rosebank, should be subject to these climate change checkpoints. So, you know, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how Equinor go about um, moving forward with this. Uh, will it be power from shore or some some other form of electrification uh, option? Um, it's going to be hugely technically challenging. Um, and, yeah, there are there, there is, I think, also this risk um, that it could become the next Cambo, as I say, with these climate protesters. For, from an industry perspective, though, um, look, um, commodity prices being where they are, it's about as good a time as any to um, give green light to a, a new oil field from that perspective purely. Um, and yeah, this has been obviously hugely welcomed um, across the board. And, and this is just one of, Rosebank is one of the six fields that the UK government was reported as trying to fast track. Uh, the, the, the Treasury was, was hoping to get fast tracked uh, forward for development. That was reported. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's certainly one of the biggest ones out there that could have been uh, pushed ahead. FID, as I say, hasn't happened yet. Equinor are on track for that from May. But yeah, how they go about it uh, will be interesting to see. But for right now, it's a statement of intent that they're ready to get the ball rolling, at least, which uh, I think is positive for people in the UK North Sea anyway. Um, but yeah, how, how that comes about is, is a question. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, do, do you guys find that surprising given what we've seen about, you know, Campbell and, and the ESG concerns, a 300 million barrel oil field? Ed, you were just talking about how um, analysis of would suggest that things will be ramping down in the UK rather than ramping up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, as, as as mentioned, you know, obviously from the from the uh, the un, my uninformed perspective, but it, it it seems like a like a kind of a tough ask, doesn't it? And I suppose, you know, my question is, you know, to, to you, Alistair, in what way is this different? I mean, I suppose... Obviously, you know, Shell pulled out and that seemed, obviously, Cambo is not really dead, but it, it Shell pulling out seemed like a sort of like a bit of a sort of a, a you know, like a, a real sort of death knell, sort of ominous sort of uh, move. And, and obviously there's that kind of, you know, sicker point is, as you know, maybe sort of still hanging in there. But 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 what's the what's the chance of progress? I suppose with, with Equinor, it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously Norwegian state owned largely mm-hmm. um, and, and, and obviously sort of, you know, susceptible to its own sort of domestic pressures. And obviously there is a. A, a move domestically in Norway to sort of try and think about ways in which to move beyond oil, mm. but I I I I I wonder whether whether Equinor is maybe sort of slightly uh, better protected than sort of the than than, than Shell in terms of uh, pushing uh, Rosebank forward. Yeah, no, I I think so. I think the first thing I would say about that is Equinor. They are an oil giant, let's be clear, but they're not a household name like a BP or a Shell. I think I think that right off the bat is um, one thing in, in their favor in terms of trying to get this up and running. Don't get me wrong, uh, the Stop Cambo campaign have taken some interest in Rosebank and, and uh, NGOs have taken some interest in Rosebank. And as the the numbers of, you know, the, the amount of money spent, invested and numbers about emissions come into play, I'm sure we will hear more and more about this project. And there's a risk it could become the next Cambo from that perspective. Um, I guess what, what Equinor has also going for it, though, is, look, they've got a track record of electrification uh, in Norway. Um, they have, they're, they're probably about as best placed an operator could be in the UK to try to get something like this going. Um, uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I suppose where they might find scrutiny, is, as you say, from, from the Norwegian um, state rather than perhaps... Um, a wider array of shareholders. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's encouraging that they haven't been put off. Um, in terms of, in terms of Cambo, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a whole, uh, a whole other ball game kind of, uh, it shouldn't be. It's, they're 25 miles apart, very, very similar in profile, but it's the players involved. And I, th- I think, I think the fact that it had a shell attached, unfortunately, um, well, I mean, a great partner for Sicker Point, you know, um, again, a very, very um, astute partner who, who knows what it's doing and, and can bring significant, you know, financial resource to getting it up and running. But I think, I think, you know, you say Shell's involved in a new North Sea project. I do think that can bring unwanted attention to a degree. I don't think saying that about an Equinor, I'm not sure you elicit the same response from the climate protesters um, just now. Um, but yeah, the the... the the question is, how is Equinor going to justify it um, from an emissions perspective? Um, hopefully, this climate checkpoint system that's coming into place, that's being consulted on right now, um, will go some ways to address that. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot up in the air at the moment. This is a first step. Um, there has been speculation reports that Acker Solutions has been working on kind of pre-feed for things like power from shore, but Equinor wasn't having any of that, wasn't confirming any of that yesterday. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how they go about it. I think without question, they're going to have to have some sort of electrification option, which obviously drives up the cost of something like this, which brings us back to 
why it's good to have commodity prices where they are at the moment. Uh... No, honestly, that's kind of that, that interesting sort of shades of grey, isn't there? Right? There's, you know, obviously, you know, Ecuador and their discussions with the government. That there's a kind of a like electrification. This is how we're going to reduce the kind of the carbon intensity per barrel. But I, I, I wonder, and this is really, isn't really a question to you. It's more of a sort of statement. I wonder to to what extent that makes any headway with the sort of the stock Cambo growth. Mm. Group, yeah. Right? Like, are they are they going to be interested in 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 electrification as a justification, or are they just going to say, look, we don't want oil to be developed? Yeah, that, that, that perhaps this won't listen to that argument. Uh, I think it's fair, fair enough for me to say. Um, you know, I think I think there are people that will just say, um, you know, you, you need to stop it. And 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 I think I think I think you know it, it is much more challenging to justify a new oil field rather than say a southern North Sea gas development. You know, um, get gas prices being being what they are. Um, there, there is an argument. Around uh, domestic supply, um, albeit there has been more and more scrutiny placed on, well, where is this oil and gas being exported to? Um, so it is it is a tough uh, square to circle. Is that the phrase, or is it the way around? Um, so, but, but yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think for a lot of people, it just won't hold water. Um, so I guess the onus is on yes, the onus is on Equinor, the onus is on the UK government to to justify it. And and, and from and from the perspective of people up here, you know. Um, you know, we we we're aware of the the economic benefits of of having a a successful uh, oil and gas industry. Um, the the argument obviously is that well, we might as well just use our own domestic supply and let that kind of naturally wind down. There's been research from the OGA recently suggesting if new fields aren't brought online, we could start seeing a, a very serious decline uh, in this industry as soon as as 2030. Um, and if if that's the case, then you know, in, in terms of an energy transition, a, a just transition for, for workers, if we don't bring new fields online, we're going to lose that workforce, um, potentially. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of, of nuanced argument uh, around why you should or shouldn't bring a new a new oil field in the UK online. Um, in terms of the, the that transition for, for workers, for the economy, um, the, the the, the argument's pretty clear, in my view, from an environmental perspective, purely from an environmental perspective, which is the way that most, I, I, w I would say most people around the world are going to be looking at this, you know, um, that is where it will become, I think, a little bit more challenging. And again, that's where uh, Equinor and and the UK governments and others are going to have to uh, pull their weight in, in, in justifying it. But um, but yeah, we will, we will park Rosebank there, but we'll stay on electrification uh, next. And Hamish will be telling us about a new uh, auction for offshore wind to power these oil and gas platforms. Energy Voice presents Net Zero Workforce, a hybrid event at the Chester Hotel Aberdeen on the 29th of March 2022. Energy is going through seismic change. This will be driven by people, attracting new talent and reskilling the current workforce. The Net Zero Workforce event will help draw the roadmap for change asking how the industry can inspire the next generation of energy leaders and help today's energy workers to adapt to a post-transition landscape. 
Join us to explore what is required for the net zero workforce to emerge and thrive. For in-person tickets and free virtual registration, visit netzeroworkforce.com. Okay, Hamish, uh, from an industry that loves an acronym, we've got a new one, INTOG. Tell us more. Yeah, it needed an acronym because without it, it was becoming quite a mouthful. The Innovation and Targeted Oil and Gas Offshore Wind Leasing Process. So it follows hot on the heels of Scotland. Obviously, the results for that announced, uh, oh, last month it still was, yeah. Feels like an age ago now for some reason. The bidding window expected to open in June. Um, These will be for projects of kind of less than 100 megawatts, so not the massive numbers that we've um, seen associated with uh, with Scotland. These were kind of more targeted, kind of smaller projects, ones for, well, obviously for uh, decarbonizing oil and gas, but kind of also kind of experimental, it seems, but from the way that we've kind of heard and, and demonstrated projects um, to try and test out a lot of these kind of new uh, kind of schemes and, and, and um kind of designs, I suppose, that are hitting the market. Um, so I mean, it was announced during Subsea Expo. Well, Ivan McKee announced it during Subsea Expo, the, the MSP, and then Crown Estate Scotland were quite quickly off the back of that. Um, so it's, I mean, it's quite pleasing to see, especially as it is following on so so hot in the heels of Scotland, because I mean, there were 74 bids, there were 17 projects allocated. There are a lot of companies and consortiums there that are that missed out and that are now looking for leasing to to try and get these projects in the water. So this is quite a good way of doing it and it will be a shorter time scale than Scotland as well. I think now that yeah. now that now that the results have passed of Scotland, it's quite interesting to see that everybody's kind of just right, what is the next what is the next opportunity going to be? And and it is in Tog and these opposed to Scotland, which will be 10, 15 years before we see these turbines in the water, this process is going to be far quicker. Um, so I think it has a lot kind of more, almost resonating more mm. with people in, in that way because because we are going to start seeing the fruits of this in the next few years. So it's a yeah a kind of a big step, I suppose, in many yeah. ways that they, we've now got around to this and in doing so so quickly after just the last leasing process. But yeah, no, like I mentioned, announced by Evan McKee during Subsea Expo and... We've been back up there uh, enjoying the in-person events and the and the free wine that comes with it. Austin. Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, no, it's, it's been great to be back. It's been great to be, see people again in person, and I think everybody's been very, just what a novelty, right? But um, but yeah, no, it, it, this this is really quite interesting because you know we have the North Sea transition deal that's putting really hard. You know, you must decarbonize your oil platform by X amount by 2025, by 2027, and then 50% by 2030, I think it is, or 90% by 2030. <laughs> I should know this. Um, heavy emission reduction targets over the next decade, let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, they're not going to do that by business as usual. They're not going to find low-hanging fruit to make the kind of cuts they need. They're, they're either going to have to shut down the platforms early, decommission them, or the ones that have got longevity, you're going to have to find some sort of electrification option. These are the only real ways of, of, of achieving the kind of targets that are being imposed. So when you look at what's out there right now, you know, you've got these, well, we talked about Rosebank, you know, Equinor is going to have to find a, a solution to that. Also in the west of Shetland, you've got BP's huge Clarefield 
And indeed, they want to develop Clear South in, in the coming years too, um, which we'll talk about the next Cambo. Um, so, you know, th- there's going to be huge interest, uh, hopefully, from from oil and gas community, who obviously were bidding in Scotland, um, to, to get involved in this and, and, and get these floating solutions ready to try and decarbonize um, the, the assets that, that are out there. F- from a supply chain perspective, you mentioned, Hamish, that you know these projects are going to be up and running much faster than than uh, the Scotwind developments. So, uh, partly, obviously, because they're 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 smaller in scale. But from if from an oil and gas supplier perspective, who wants to transition into floating wind, you know, uh, particularly in, in the subsea spaces we're hearing this week, what an opportunity to to get after that and and get acquainted with it. Many of the customers will probably be customers uh, that they are familiar with in the oil and gas space, rather than necessarily. Uh, there will, I'm sure, there'll be renewables develop, uh, renewable developers uh, in consortium with with oil and gas, as we saw in Scotland, perhaps. But you know, it, it seems to me it's a very good way into um, uh, a viable business in in the renewable space for um, somebody operating in uh, subsea oil and gas. So. You know, a, a, a lot of excitement. And yeah, I mean, it was suggested at Subsea Expo these projects could be in the water in the next couple of years. I think that's slightly optimistic. But um, certainly in the next kind of coming years, the few next few years, um, it will be happening. I understand that Marine Scotland have got a little bit of planning loopholes to, to, to figure out before they can get projects in the water. But we're, we're looking at awards in the next kind of uh, year or so, really. So, um, you know, it's it's moving very fast and it's 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 good to see. I mean, and we've heard from, you know, we've, it's not just your big players. We've heard, you know, companies like CNOC is a big player, um, but, you know, it's not just your your household uh, oil majors uh, that you're aware of, but, you know, other, other players like CNOC have been talking about businesses and floating wind for some time now as well, just seeing this opportunity. So, um, yeah, I think from from the North Sea perspective, the next kind of wave of projects, the next big wave of projects, it, it may well be this. Yeah, I think so. And it's important to mention that Scotland point as well, because I was at a session yesterday with um, uh, Gunter Newcomb, who's heading up the Orion project in Shetland, and he was he was kind of saying because the NE one zone, as it was called, so that's uh, just east of Shetland, wasn't actually picked up in the Scotland leasing auction. There were companies that bid for it, but they didn't kind of clear the necessary hurdles in order to be able to um, be able to secure this option agreement. So for places like that, it's going to be quite... Intog is going to be um, kind of really crucial because a lot of these Orion projects, and that's looking at making huge amounts of green hydrogen, decarbonizing, decarbonizing oil and gas um, assets around Shetland, these kind of offshore wind developments are going to be pretty crucial to the to the progression of that project. So it, it's going to give, I suppose, options and comp- uh, sorry regions and companies a chance to um, to secure off- offshore wind if they missed it in Scotland. Which, if you're all going to want to be as as green and as, uh, as sort of reliant on clean energy as has been proposed, then we're going to lead so many of these turbines and so many of these developments that that these leasing rounds are going to be pretty crucial mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's going to be, it's going to be exciting times uh, ahead. I mean, uh, it, it, and the, let's not forget, of course, that if you can get something like this up and running in, in the right way, the, there's export opportunities as well. Um, and hopefully the rest of the world will, or many parts of the world will hopefully look to what's being done in, in these waters um, as they look to decarbonize other parts of their uh, infrastructure uh, as well. So it's, it's a huge opportunity to get after. Um 
and hopefully the, the UK can leverage some of this global underwater expertise we've been hearing about so much this week to uh, to make it happen, but we'll, we will see, we will see. So um, I think in that case, gents, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you very much to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.